My husband was a respected officer that upheld the law. My husband was a hero. My husband was murdered. My husband was murdered in cold blood, shot in the chest. <clears throat> Stopping a man who had terrorized the city of Detroit with senseless violence over and over again. Detroit Police Sergeant Kenneth Style died five days after Marquise Cromer, a young man amid a mental health crisis, shot him behind a Detroit gas station. This is Michigan Crime Stories. Michigan Crime Stories is a podcast that explores murder, mysteries, and mayhem in the Mitten State. Criminal behavior has always enthralled us. It's when society's determined what is and isn't allowed. We assume heinous crimes are committed by monsters, individuals we dehumanize in an effort to make sense of their deeds. Their victims sometimes seem distant, just faded names in a passing headline. But the terrifying truth is that crimes are committed by ordinary people, just like you and me. And many of those crimes have been right in our own backyards. My name is Gus Burns. And I'm Darcy Moran. We're reporters for MLive.com and your host for Michigan Crime Stories. This episode is part two of a multi-part special on MLive's investigation into the mental health of suspects and police killings. It's told by co-host and reporter on the story, Gus Burns. This episode is titled, Cop Killer by Reason of Insanity. in my foot and I turned around and I see he had ripped and tried to hide the shotgun and I went on out the door to the people house next door. My wife, she still didn't know what was going on because I, you know, I didn't scream or holler. She thought he was just shooting a gun in the house. So she went up and asked him, what, uh, what was he shooting a gun in the house for? And he started reloading it again and when she seen that, she went next door too. And then that's when we called the police. That's Marquise Cromer's father, Sterling Cromer, describing the beginning of his son's violent crime spree one day in 2016. In a 2019 investigation, MLive found that greater than one-third of all police fatalities included people with or exhibiting signs of mental illness, people like Marquise Cromer. Sterling Cromer and his girlfriend, whom he refers to as his wife, escaped with their lives, but Marquise Cromer's violent rampage was far from over. By the time it concluded later that night, a Detroit police officer was being rushed to the hospital. After shooting his dad, Marquise went to a car wash in the Detroit enclave of Hamtramck. He approached a 23-year-old man and asked for a ride in the man's pickup truck. He demanded the keys and then blasted him in the stomach. For some unknown reason, Marquise ended up fleeing without taking the vehicle. That victim, luckily, survived. Next, as Cromer would later say, God told him to smoke a joint at a bus stop near Seven Mile and Hayes on Detroit's east side, an area riddled with violence and blight. Officers found Cromer and cornered him behind a nearby Sunoco gas station. With nowhere to run, he pulled out a shotgun and opened fire, striking an officer. The officer was Detroit Police Sergeant Kenneth Style, known to fellow officers by his nickname, Shark, a name he earned due to his scuba prowess and involvement with the department's water recovery team. He was also referred to as a real-life superhero by fellow officers and known to mentor suspects he arrested. He was wearing a protective vest, but took a shotgun blast to the upper right chest and shoulder. He suffered a broken rib and a punctured lung. Despite the injuries, within hours of the shooting, Detroit Police Chief James Craig at a press conference said, Style was walking around in a good spirits. 
He expected a full recovery. Style, while in the hospital, told Detroit's mayor that he did what he was supposed to do that night. He saved lives. Five days later, at Style's suburban home in St. Clair Shores, his wife, Joanne, waited eagerly for her husband's return. Style's two sons, three-year-old William and five-year-old Alexander, excitedly colored a welcome home banner. Style prepared to leave St. John's Hospital in East Detroit, but the lawman never made it to his driveway. He collapsed and died a short time later. The medical examiner would later list internal bleeding as a contributor, but the manner of death was ruled homicide. By the time Style died, Marquise Cromer was already locked up in the Wayne County Jail facing serious charges, including attempted murder of a police officer. With the death of Style, he faced murder charges. If convicted, it meant he'd live the rest of his days in prison. Marquise went on trial for Stiles' murder in January of 2018, but before testimony concluded, the prosecution offered him a deal. They said it was in the best interest of justice. Here's Cromer's criminal defense attorney, Sanford Shulman. But what happened during the trial is that, uh, is that we were opening up the defense of insanity. And I think it was a very, very strong defense. And the prosecutor was sensing that the jury might come back not guilty by reason of insanity. Cromer, on the advice of his attorney and mother, agreed to an unusual plea, guilty but mentally ill. It ensured he would avoid a sentence of mandatory life in prison with no chance of parole. Instead, he would be parole eligible in 40 years and receive mental health treatment behind bars. Marquise's attorney insists his client was competent to make that decision. He answered all the questions. He was writing letters in the jail. He was talking to other inmates. He was asking for discovery. He... I mean, that's where people think he was faking it, because he seemed to know kind of what was going on. At sentencing, Cromer absently picked at his hands and stared at the ceiling. He told Wayne County Circuit Judge Shannon Walker, voices told him to do it. He thought it was God. And it's apparent to the court that Mr. Cromer has a history of serious mental illness. Um, a review of the sentencing memorandum indicates that Mr. Cromer was recommended for inpatient treatment Back in Police Chief Craig put it this way. Uh, you could ask any police officer and they will tell you that's a dominant call that they address and one of the more dangerous calls. We have tremendous training both in service and in the academy. That's not the answer to fix it. The answer to fix it is what do we do and how do we treat those who are suffering? Yet when it comes to this, which is a public safety crisis, it's, it's simple. You just have to put money to it. It's a national issue. And unless we realize that this has to be a top priority, uh, we're going to continue to go in this vicious cycle of violence against police officers, violence against our community members, because we're not ensuring people suffering are getting sustained treatment. 
But some think the whole discussion about mental illness lets cop killers like Marquise Cromer off the hook. Here's Stiles' friend and fellow officer, Stephen Hyde, speaking at Cromer's sentencing. As the news stories pile up of those with mental illness gunning down police, I see a dangerous precedent being shaped. Mental illness, that is the new excuse. An excuse to brutally gun down officers of the law. They say we are criminalizing the mentally ill. I know many mentally ill people who have never picked up a gun and shot their own father. I know many mentally ill people who have never carjacked anyone. I know many mentally ill people who have never run from the police and when they knew they would be caught, turned and ambushed the first police officer that rounded the corner from their hiding spot. He does not fool me. This act he has put on since the moment he was apprehended, laughing and giggling, blowing kisses at me during our pre-exam. I have no doubt he has mental illness. Anyone who murders and maims others has mental illness. Anyone who wishes and carries out harm upon their fellow man has mental illness, but that does not excuse him of responsibility of his actions. He knew exactly what he was doing each and every time he pulled that trigger. Today, Ken Stiles' wife and sons are serving life without their husband and father. Marquise, now 24, is inmate 897-660 at Ionia Correctional Facility in Michigan. He's serving time for second-degree murder and other crimes. He'll be 61 on his earliest possible release date. Marquise still sometimes picks up the prison telephone and calls his dad collect. But Sterling Cromer never answers. Oh yeah, I love him. Yes, I do. I love him. I sure do. But I love him as a as a person. But I just like his ways because the person that I know, the person that I knew, is not him. That's somebody else. That's not that same person. Hey, well, this is Darcy Moran with Michigan Crime Stories, and I'm here with Gus Burns today. Hey, Gus, thank you for uh, telling this story. No problem. Hello. I want to jump in first and foremost on this part of the story, and this is the second part in the series. We hear a lot more of the voices in the courtroom um, for Marquise Cromer's sentencing, and I'm wondering if you can kind of set the scene for us a little bit of what it was like being there with these two families coming together. There was a lot of everybody in the courtroom there was the media was had filled the jury box so there were tons of reporters in there and then I recall when they allowed in the family and friends there was like rows of Detroit police officers and friends and his family and obviously a lot of tears um, just because you kind of could see like how tight the police community is and their support for the family Uh, there was a lot of tension and then as far as as the proceeding went forward, I remember uh, Cromer was acting strange. He was very aloof-seeming. He would sit back in his chair, um, pick at his hands a lot, look down at his hands, and stare at the ceiling. And he would smile at weird times for no reason and look over at the press a lot. So that's kind of what I recall from that day. And what did you take from the Style family in particular? We've talked a lot about in our reporting a lot of the problems that Cromer had and kind of the the sympathies one might have for someone in that situation. Did you hear that kind of concern coming from the family? What are, what are their stance on this entire issue? I think that the fact that he was mentally ill is something that people kind of step back later on and look at, but at the time... There was not a lot of compassion for the fact that someone said he was mentally ill. Like, no one really knew his history. Um, they didn't know what had happened to him. All they know is what happened that night and the violence that he had enacted before he shot Kenneth Style. So, um, 
even one of the, one of the friend of Kenneth Style said, you know, this is an excuse. I know plenty of mentally ill people who have not committed this kind of violence. So there wasn't a lot of sympathy from that end. And that it reiterates a point that we've said before and heard a lot through other reporting that mentally ill people are not uh, frequently violent. So that's not a new idea. But it's interesting to hear that the family, while that this might be a discussion that mental illness played a role and someone should have helped him earlier, they don't find that to be a fair reason or an excuse for him to have done what he did. Not at all. I think everyone wanted him to get an automatic life sentence, and I think some people were disappointed that he actually um, has a chance, um, on paper at least, to get out at someday. Were you able to speak with the Style family at all about this? Um, no, they were kind of shielded by the police community. Um, there was no, they wouldn't take any interviews from me and didn't return calls. But, I mean, they spoke um, briefly, you know, like at the funeral and stuff. I think they addressed the media a little bit. And and what did you get from what they are experiencing in this loss? I mean, obviously, was, uh, you have a fairly young family. Uh, he's got two young boys. And just the week before, he, as he was in the hospital, he couldn't take his son to school. So he had contacted fellow officers, and they kind of paraded the son in uh, to school. I mean, they were such a tight knit family. I mean, they were making a welcome home banner, and then he died unexpectedly. So you could just sense the how tragic it was and how life-shattering it was for the family and, and his two sons who are now without a father. And it sounds like for the department, too. I mean, a big loss for them. Right. I mean, there were officers crying. I mean, sometimes you don't see that too often, but I mean, when police officers die, their friends and fellow officers shed tears. Now, I want to go back to something as well. Marquise Cromer, we referenced in this episode his kind of storytelling about what happened that night, where God told him he was supposed to go smoke a joint. And you actually, from your reporting, spoke with him quite a bit. Isn't that correct? Uh, Yeah, about probably within a couple months after he was sentenced, and he ended up in the Saginaw Correctional Facility. And I drove up there and went in. There was a visitation. I went in with a bunch of other families, and he walked in to accept an interview with me. Um, just from that, I recall him being a large person. He definitely, he seemed kind of meek at the time. Um, his, he had, I remember him having like a distant gaze. So he didn't always, it looked like he was looking up into the corners and through me and stuff. And he was saying a lot of things that didn't make a lot of sense. Like he, at the time, I recall him saying that he thought he didn't do any of this. Um, he was talking about a CIA clone that he believed was sent in to shoot his father. Um, he talked about, police trying to pin the shooting of style on him he says he never fired it but after the after the gunshot blast he remembers them throwing shotgun shells on his stomach i remember not being not seeming to understand that he was going to be spending almost the rest of his life in prison he he didn't believe he thought he was going to be out within a few months when i talked to him so i didn't feel like he got a good grasp of what happened to him and there were other things that you noted as well too that he there was something about a cosby girl twerking there there were some interesting weird details in your reporting there yeah he was hard to get to open up a lot but i was asking him about he did say that he had some issues since he was young, and then I, he talked about hearing voices, which his father has said he'd heard his whole life. And I got him to talk a little bit about some of those visions and hallucinations he's had. And I, he just said there were a lot of scary ones. He said he was see devils, um, sometimes God. And then he had some weird reoccurring hallucination that always involved, he would see like little, if you, someone had a stroller or something, he said the baby would start dancing. And a lot of times he would see Rudy Huxtable from The Cosby Show, uh, twerking is what, how he put it. 
I'm, that's It's a wild detail. <laughs> Stepping back, I thought it was notable with Chief Craig talking about this issue and how it affects his officers that they're kind of on the front lines, if you will, of the mental health crisis. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned in your reporting about that aspect and about what's being done to address it? Uh, the way police are handling mental health, uh, especially when their interactions with mentally ill, potentially mentally ill people, has changed a lot. I mean, I've noticed um, different departments handle it differently. Like a lot of times when you have barricaded gunman situations, those end up being mentally ill people or people in crisis. And I've noticed Detroit police specifically have been very patient. Like that's one of the tactics is if someone's having a crisis, be patient with them rather than rushing in and trying to force action on them. And that's what the old kind of style was. You tell someone to do something. If they don't, then you take action and use any force necessary escalating to get that action taken care of. They're also increasingly using crisis intervention teams. So police officers are working with the mental health professionals and they have them kind of assigned to units and so say there is a barricaded gunman, they will send a mental health professional in to try to guide the police on the actions or how they might communicate better with the suspect. I think we've seen some of that here in Washington County where the Ann Arbor News is based too, where they are sending people with more of a social work background to work with officers on those interactions. Um, So it sounds like that's part of a a wider look at the issue. Do you know any information on whether or not that's a statewide effort or if that's very local department based? It's No, it's increasingly statewide. I know state police now require certain things like mental health training as part of their academy. Yeah, pretty much every department, all the larger ones at least, are using their connections with their county mental health professionals and crisis intervention specialists. But when we go back to the root of some of this, which is Marquise Kramer had a long history, and we've heard multiple times people in his life saying, he should have gotten help. It shouldn't have been at this point where he was allowed to be out on the street, unmedicated or whatever, to be able to do this. And I'm curious what's happening at that level with mental health uh, counseling and funding for departments to handle that. What's going on with there? Any changes there? The main issue that everyone points to is a lack of services for the severely mentally ill. And that has arisen from the lack of state hospital beds. So one of the solutions that, at least especially in the mental health industry, they've been talking about is basically enticing more hospitals to open up beds to the mentally ill, and with that means providing them more money to do it, to entice them. Um, and and then I think we touched based on that last time as well, yeah. Right, and then definitely it's the training. Departments are go- around the state and around the nation are getting specialized training to teach them not only how to deal with mentally ill, but people who are on substances or have even developmental difficulties like autism. So they're trying to really expand police knowledge of different human behavior and how to communicate with people based on their situation. Were there any final takeaways or surprising aspects of this story and this investigation for you? Um, One thing that kind of surprised me was the plea in general. Like I haven't heard of guilty but mentally ill. Beyond that, I guess it just it is just the number, the sheer number of officers and suspects who are killed by police that are exhibiting signs of mental illness. It just seems like it was a it's a, a bigger problem than maybe most people know. Well, I really appreciate you telling this story and all the work that you did to shine a light on this crisis. 
Before we go, I want to share the number for a national hotline for listeners that might be experiencing or know someone experiencing a mental health crisis. Uh, That number is 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-HELP. And uh, I'm Darcy Moran. I'm Gus Burns. And this is Michigan Crime Stories. Audio editing for this episode was done by Tanya Magellis, while the music was recorded by John Counts. Thank you to Police Chief James Craig, Sterling Cromer, and Sanford Chilman for speaking to me for this story. Also, thank you for listening, and please send me any tips or suggestions to fburns at mlive.com. That's F-B-U-R-N-S at mlive.com. <laughs>